Anytime Aaron's open to singing a Need to Breathe song for offertory, I say yes and amen to that. So if you're not a fan, you should be. Um, let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, really quick, one announcement before we get rolling this morning. Uh, we have a choir concert tonight, 4 o'clock, that uh, our choir would love for you to join in and um, come and, and um, listen and sing along. And so um, if you're open and available, 4 o'clock right here in the lobby, we'd love to see you back here later on tonight. Hey, um, if, you're, if it's your first time or first time in a while, you picked a great Sunday to come. We are in the midst of a series that we have called Brave in the New World. How many of you feel like our world is changing pretty rapidly? Okay. I do too, and I don't know if you've noticed, but along with those changes, uh, our world feels, or at least our, our nation, our culture, our cultural moment feels more divided than it's ever felt. Anybody feel that as well? That's actually not just a feeling. Political scientists have studied sort of what's going on, and they say as a nation, we are more divided now than we have ever been as a nation post-Civil War, okay? So that's not just a, a sort of visceral feeling. That is a reality. In fact, I saw one study that said after the 2016 elections, one in six extended families had some people who were not talking to each other, okay? So now don't point, don't elbow anybody, but, but, and I think as a follower of Jesus, it can be really difficult, can't it, to figure out how do we interact, if you are a Christ follower this morning, how do we interact in, in this world as people of faith and in a society and culture that seems everly increasingly divided. I was on an airplane a while back and sat down next to a woman who was sitting next to me and introduced myself and we started up a little bit of a conversation and eventually the conversation came to the point where she asked me what I do for a living. <clears throat> and I thought about lying and then I thought, no, I need to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. And <laughs> So I said, I'm in insurance, and um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I said to her, I'm a pastor, and our conversation came to a screeching halt. I don't know what her past experience with pastors was or with Christians was, but I do know that the only thing I saw from her from that point on was the other side of her earbuds. We didn't say another word to each other the whole entire flight. They did a research project a while back and asked young people what they thought of the church, people who aren't followers of Jesus. And what they found was that nine out of 10 people, so catch this, 90% of young people who are not in the church, one of the first words they think of when they think of Christians, along with hypocritical and anti-gay, is judgmental. Judgmental. And I don't know what this woman's story was, but if that's nine out of 10 people feel that way, maybe, maybe that's the way that she viewed me. Maybe it's the way she'd view you if you were sitting next to her on a plane. And we seem to be in this cultural moment where we pigeonhole people into one of two boxes. We either find people who agree with us and we, we lionize them. We go like, these are, these are our people and they are right. Or we encounter people we disagree with and we demonize them. That we sort of push them off to the side. And do you know what? You're actually, your brain is actually wired to do that. That neuroscientists have figured out that we are hardwired for what they call tribalism. 
the, the desire to sort of find out who our people are, who our us is, and who the them is, and, and we sort of put a line in the sand, and you're either with us or you're against us, and if you're against us, it's game on, isn't it? And if you disagree with somebody, you may have experienced this, you're viewed as intolerant, right? Intolerant. Well, it's just a quick history of the word tolerance. I'm not going to beat this into the ground too much. I don't think. We'll see how the spirit leads. <laughs> but intolerance does not mean that you disagree with somebody. You know that, right? Intolerance, or the word, the word tolerance actually means that you tolerate. I know. <laughs> so tolerance literally means I create space for somebody who I disagree with. It doesn't mean I agree. It doesn't mean I celebrate. It doesn't mean, oh, now I get it. It means I will create space in my life and in our cultural setting for you to hold a differing opinion than I do. I tolerate Raiders fans. <laughs> I tolerate people who put pineapple on pizza. I don't share table fellowship with them because they're wrong, but I create space for them to do their thing. I just know when the kingdom fully comes, that won't be a thing anymore. And I hold on to that, right? But we tolerate things all the time. See, the reality is that intolerance is not disagreement. It's forcing people to agree with you or casting them aside because they don't. That's what intolerance is. As Charles, Charles Taylor said in his seminal work called A Secular Age, he said, that's what Tim Keller said in his seminal work. But um, Charles Taylor said this, let each person do their own thing. And one shouldn't criticize the other's values because they have a right to live their own life as you do. The only sin which is not tolerated in our modern secular age is intolerance, which is just a tad bit hypocritical, is it not? And so we live in this cultural moment where followers of Jesus are often tagged as being um, intolerant. Where we either cast people aside, that's the way we're viewed, or we judge them, and that's the way that many followers of Christ are viewed. And I have this just, I think it's a holy haunt as I read through the Gospels, that Jesus had this way of, of drawing people in. That, that even people, even people who didn't agree with Jesus liked Jesus. I, I don't know that we'd say the same about the church today, would we? That people who disagree with the church like the church. No, no, I think that the echo that comes up from our secular age is far more akin to Gandhi who said, I like your Christ, but I do not like you Christians. You Christians are so unlike your Christ. I think that's more of what people are getting from us. Now, now, this isn't intended to cast stones at you or at me or at us. It's simply, it's simply intended to say, let's step back and just see if there's, if there's any truth in that. And if there's something that we can learn from Jesus about the way that we interact with our world, who at a lot, oftentimes we disagree with, if we can learn how to do that better from Jesus, I think we should. What do you think? Okay, good. So we're on the same page here. Why don't you turn to John chapter 8? John chapter 8. And let's look at the way that Jesus interacts when he disagrees. 
You do know that if we define tolerance by tolerating people who disagree with you, Jesus was extremely tolerant. Extremely tolerant. That's just an aside. So John chapter 8, as you're turning there, let me just give you the context. We've been looking at passages that people um, from the outside tried to use, things that people tried to use against Jesus to sort of pin him into a corner, to get him to say something that would get him in trouble. A few weeks ago, we looked at people bringing the issue of politics to Jesus. And we said, man, isn't it shocking? Aren't we glad, aren't we glad that politics being divisive is a thing of the past, right? And so now today, I mean, the world has changed so much in 2,000 years. Now today, we're going to see that there's, they're going to bring somebody who's been caught in the act of adultery, so sexual promiscuity, and they're going to bring this person to Jesus and try to trap him in his words to get him to say something that later they could crucify him for. Oh, how the times have changed. John chapter 8, verse 1. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery, and placing her in the, in the midst, and sort of in the middle of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now just pause for a moment. Let's not skip by this scene. Let's try to get the picture of it in our heads. What do you look like if you've been caught in the act of adultery? What do you look like if you're a Pharisee or a scribe bringing this woman to Jesus? Probably a sort of a pious look on their face, a shameful look on this woman's face. And they're going to throw down and they're going to ask Jesus this question. Now, in the law, or you could just read the Bible. Let's do that. That's more fun. Now, the Bible commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, John's going to tell us. Uh, they said this to test him, that they might have something to charge him with and to bring against him. Um, Jesus, here's our question for you. Are you one of those conservative, good Jewish rabbis that believes in the Bible? You follow the Bible? Or are you one of those liberal Romans that just wants to let anything go? Where do you stand, Jesus? You gonna judge her? You gonna tolerate her? You gonna condemn her? It's really interesting. The scribes and the Pharisees, they want to stone this woman because of the Bible. I mean, look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Which, just as an aside, begs the question, usually it takes two people for adultery. Where's the woman? Right? Where's the woman? She's right there. Where's the man? Thank you. <laughs> the woman's right there, Paulson. Where's the guy? Isn't it interesting how people in positions of power typically pick which rules they want to enforce and the ones that they enforce always benefit them? Both of them shall die. 
the man who laid with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. I mean, they're going, Jesus, we've got chapter and verse on it. Jesus, if you let this one go, what else are you going to let go? Jesus, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Jesus, it's a slippery slope. You start picking and choosing which ones of these you want to enforce and which ones you want to ignore. What are you going to do, Jesus? You've got two options. You've got the Roman liberal, you do you way, and you've got the fundamentalist, conservative, letter of the law way, which way is it, Jesus? And he's like, two ways? That's it? That's it? I mean, I think Jesus rejects this binary side-picking us-them, option one, option two, false dichotomy with everything that's in him because Jesus knows exactly why he has come. He has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to be a physician for those who are wounded, and he will not let anybody hijack his agenda even if they try to use the Bible to do it. So Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. We do know that he had to do this multiple times. My guess is um, some people think he wrote the names of the people, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Others think maybe he, he wrote some sin that they had struggled with. Um, I, maybe, maybe he wrote Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I long for mercy, not sacrifice. They continued to ask him. They didn't get the, they didn't get the picture right away. Eventually they would. And he stood up and he said to him, them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I mean, Jesus is essentially saying there's only one person who's qualified to get this party started. And it's the person who has zero reason that we could put you on the other side of the firing line. And just remember, the wages of all sin is death. So, gentlemen... Who wants to be the first to cast a stone? Once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Regardless of what Jesus wrote, it served its purpose. All of these scribes, all of these theologians, all of these Pharisees have gone 
away. The men who wanted to stone this woman are gone. She's standing face to face with her creator, her creator who designed her to live in a certain way. She had gone against the grain of his design, against the grain of his love, against the grain of his goodness. How is Jesus going to respond? What's he going to do? I mean, is Jesus going to respond with acceptance? Listen, you do you. You do you. Whatever you want. Follow your heart. Or is Jesus going to say, I'm really sorry, but you know who the only one here is who could actually throw one of these stones? (laughs) The one without sin, it's me, and I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to go letter the law on you. (laughs) Jesus stood up. And said to her, woman, where are they? Where'd they go? No, no one's looking for a bigger rock. Where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. And go on from here. Now go and sin No, more. You do know that there's more than two ways. There's more than acceptance, you do you, and there's more than judgment, you're condemned for your action. There's a third way. It's called love. It's actually the entire foundation of the kingdom of God. And what love does is love says, no, I'm not going to go with the sort of the liberal way. You do whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy, you're good. And I'm not going to go with a fundamentalist way, a letter of the law. You need to die for what you've done. Love actually creates space for disagreement. But it speaks the truth and invites change that leads to flourishing. Love says to the other person, I know I can't control you. I know I can't force my way on you. I know that I can't twist your arm and make you do something that you do not want to do, but love speaks the truth. I think that what you're doing is actually terrible for you. It's terrible for the people around you, and it calls people to more. Love never just sits on its hands when it sees people moving towards destruction. That's not love. That's actually indifference and it's hate. And so I think our goal as followers of Jesus should not be to resolve all the tensions. Our goal as followers of Jesus should not be to hold zero opinion. You do know that that's how you could avoid disagreeing with people. Just don't have an opinion about anything. But it's not what you're called to do as followers of Christ. I think our goal as Christ followers should redeem the ability, should be to redeem the ability to disagree well with people and still love them and still move forward in relationship with them. That's what Jesus does. Maybe, this might be shocking, maybe we have something to learn from him about how to operate in the public square. Because that's where this happened. So what can we learn from Jesus? Notice what Jesus does. Jesus takes a very public setting. We have this system, this system of law, and people representing the system of law. And we have this woman who's caught in an offense that, that is prohibited in the law. And what does Jesus do? He takes what's a public setting and a public trial 
and he makes it very personal, doesn't he? Here's what he says to the Pharisees. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. See, they chose stoning as a way to publicly kill people because nobody was guilty. That's why they love stoning. Nobody ever walks away from a stoning and thinks, it was my rock. It was, it was me who did it. Everybody can walk away and say, that was really unfortunate that we had to do that. I'm, I, I'm happy to be a part of it, but I'm glad that it's not on my shoulders. Somebody else's fault. And Jesus says, sorry, not let me get away that quickly and that easy. He moves from mob mentality to personal accountability. And here's what he does. He calls the people who want to enforce the law to first enforce it on themselves. And so here's, I think, the third way of love. Here's the first thing it demands of us, that we search our heart before we judge our neighbor. And Kate, will you look up at me for just a second? I've never met somebody who honestly searches their own heart, who also then wants to judge their neighbor. Ever. Because when we look deep enough within, we find something that we could be on the other side of that stoning for, don't we? And so Jesus forces them to look inside before they judge the outside. Now, I would just know that this is really, really, to search your heart is so difficult in our cultural moment because we have built identity on the expressive autonomous self and the way that we define who we are is primarily, most of us, it's only by looking on the inside. And so if somebody questions what's on the inside, if somebody doubts what's on the inside, if somebody pushes back against who we think we are, our identity starts to crumble and the very foundation that we're on stop, start, stops holding us up, which is why the scriptures say, don't find your identity by looking on the inside only, look up. Like, find your identity as a child of God. Know that you're loved. Know that you're valuable. Beyond what you produce and beyond what you do, know that God designed you and God is good. You know what that gives us the ability to do? To look deep within without fear of losing ourselves. Because our foundation is on something bigger, something stronger. Man, if the Pharisees teach us anything in this section, they teach us that self-righteousness is the fuel for judgment. But notice what else happens. Notice what else happens. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman to Jesus who'd been caught in the act of adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to Jesus. So there's this woman there, and they're talking to whom? Jesus. But Jesus, verse 10, stood up and said to whom? To her. It's really interesting because the Pharisees and the scribes, they want to talk about this woman. But Jesus wants to talk to this woman. There is a huge difference the Pharisees want to discuss her sin. Jesus wants to look into her eyes. The Pharisees want to define her by her actions. Jesus wants to excavate what's in your soul. Who has God made you to be? The Pharisees want to label her as her offense, but Jesus wants to redeem what's broken. 
They want to talk about her. Jesus wants to talk to her. And friends, if we're going to live in this third way of love, I believe that the church of the future needs to be the church that sees people rather than issues. We cannot just blanket statement, sort of label people, we'll talk about that in a moment. We have to be willing to say there is a person behind this who matters to Jesus and who therefore has to matter to us. What does that look like? Let me, let me give you four things. I'm going to fly through these. Four things. Here's what it looks like. It looks like defending people. That's what it looked like for Jesus. Does he agree with the woman who's caught in adultery? Is he saying, that's a great idea, I think most people should do that? No! What does he do, though? He comes and he stands in between her and people who want to cast stones at her, throw rocks at her, and kill her. Even though he doesn't agree with her, he comes to her defense. Ironically, it's religious people that want to bury her. Recently, uh, there's a, a popular author and speaker in the Christian world. Her name is Rachel Held Evans. Popular author, progressive, but, but just really, really loving. And she got, a, um, she, she got a disease and eventually passed away a few weeks ago. And I was watching this on Facebook or on, on Twitter. And this hashtag, because of RHE, started to pass, just like pop up hundreds of thousands of people. Rachel came to my defense. Rachel was a voice for me. She spoke out for people in the LGBTQI community that had no voice in the church. She spoke out for minorities who often didn't have a voice in the church. She spoke up for women who sometimes didn't have a voice in the church. And this outpouring of love after she passed away, I, I was reading those and going, this is everything I want people to say about me when I'm gone. What did she do? She stood up for people who she didn't always agree with, but agreed that their voice mattered. And she stood in between them and people who wanted to take them down. I think it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus would do. See, Jesus doesn't just say to this woman, I see you. Jesus says to this woman, I'll stand with you. Here's the other thing he does. He listens to her. He listens to her. It's not explicit within this passage, but he does say to her, where are your accusers? And he lets her respond. He knows that her voice is important, that her story's important. He doesn't give her a speech about all the things she did wrong. It's interesting. Uh, Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinnaman, in a book that's a few years old now called Unchristian, they were interviewing people about what they thought about Christians and sort of what their perspective was from the outside about people who follow the way of Jesus. And uh, here's what they said They say Christians like to hear themselves talk. They're arrogant about their beliefs, but they never bother to figure out what other people actually think. They don't seem to be very compassionate, especially when they feel strongly about something. Ah, man. I would love, love, love to see the church of the future reverse that trend. If we're going to see people, we've got to listen to people. We also have to refuse to label. To the Pharisees, this woman is adultery. To Jesus, she's a woman created in the image of an almighty God. And then I think, finally, how do we really see people? 
I think we have to practice the discipline of putting ourselves in their place. So maybe the narrative goes a little bit like this. If I grew up in the home that she grew up in, if I had the experiences that she had, if I carried the pain that she carried, I'd probably do what she's doing. And you can work that narrative out for anybody you drive by on the corner of the street. If I had the same experiences, if I had the same beliefs growing up, if I had the same baggage, if I had the same pain, I'd probably be in the same place. Yeah, let's see people. Let's see people. This is the way of love. It's not judgment. It's not acceptance. It's love. It's love. And then finally, this is what Jesus says. He says, and Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Where'd they go? Oh, they're not here? And he says to her at that point, has no one condemned you? And she said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. I think Jesus does what the church is called to do. And I think all the more is being called to do as we move into the future to offer correction without heaping condemnation. That there's this gentle word, and the thing that I love about Jesus, if anybody could have forced their way on somebody, it was Jesus. But he doesn't. What did this woman do after Jesus released her? We don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus showers grace and mercy down on her that has the ability to change her Life. See, the Pharisees and scribes, they want calling out her sin to be her end, quite literally. But Jesus intends for it to be her beginning. When Jesus points out her sin, it's to say to her, go and sin no more. When the Pharisees point out her sin, it's to say, it's over. It's over. Which one do we do? Which one does the church do? See, there's two different ways of looking at the gospel. There's what I call the moral gospel. And here's what the moral gospel says. Go and sin no more, and then there will be no condemnation. Get your act together. And then God will be okay with you. And then God's grace will be accessible for you. Earn it just a little bit, and God will meet you halfway. God helps those who help themselves. Yep, that's in First Opinions chapter 3. Friends, let me share with you the real gospel. The Jesus gospel is not go and sin no more and then there will be no condemnation. Read it. It's right there. There is therefore no condemnation, so go and sin no more. The most powerful thing to free people from a life of sin is not condemnation, it's not punishment, it's ironically and actually grace. God's loving, merciful grace showered down on people's lives is what actually leads people to change. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. 
It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That's why the apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. Sin's not going to reign over you because now you know all the rules and now you're acting perfectly and now you know that you're in really big trouble if you sin. That's how sin loses its power, right? No. Sin will have no dominion over you because since you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. Grace is not a license to sin, as you see in this woman's life. It's actually freedom from having to live in it. That's what it is. So I was wrestling with this. Does Jesus disagree with the Bible? I mean, before you answer, I know the right church answer is no. (laughs) The only problem is he seems to disagree with the Bible. What what do we do with that? Uh, Man, this whole week, I was just going, Jesus, what do we do with that? And I think here's where where I've landed. You don't have to agree with me. But but I think Jesus doesn't disagree with the intent of the law. He's like anti-adultery. That's what the law was trying to accomplish. He just disagrees with the effectiveness of the law. That you don't get there by stoning people. You actually get there by loving people. He doesn't disagree with the intent of the law. He disagrees with the effectiveness of it. And he's coming to bring about a whole new way of interacting. It's not acceptance and it's not judgment. It's love. And love creates space for the other but calls them to more. Please hear me. I'm not saying Jesus thinks adultery is a good thing. Go. You do you. Right? That's not, that, that's not what I'm saying. He does not think adultery is a good thing. He designed people when they're in relationship to be in covenantal, monogamous, fidelity, relationship. That, that's his design for people. Okay? And so he knows that adultery fractures that design, causes a whole lot of pain. But Jesus doesn't just hate the pain that this causes in the community of people. He hates the pain that it causes in this woman and in her life. And he wants to redeem it and reverse it. And he knows that grace is the only thing that will actually free her. He's saying he wants to free her from the actions that are killing her rather than killing her himself. And friends, this has to be, I believe, the aim of the church of the future, that we would aim for healing and not for punishment. That we'd aim for healing and not for punishment. If you're here today, I want you to hear very clearly, Jesus wants you to be a whole person. Jesus wants you to be a free person. Jesus designed you for flourishing. He hates the things that have come into your life that weren't your choice, the pain that you carry that wasn't your choice to carry. Jesus hates it. He wants to heal it. He wants to redeem it. And he hates the decisions that we make that lead us away from his good, gracious, loving presence and kingdom. And in his coming, he came to say, I want to kill the things that are killing you. Friends, that's what the life, death, and burial, resurrection of Jesus is all about. He buries those things in the ground and then he's raised to walk in newness of life and he says, by faith in me, you can receive and walk in that life too. So his message, Jesus' one central message is repent. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. 
And you don't have to hold on to your pain and you don't have to hold on to your baggage. Uh, you have to let it go in order to enter my kingdom. You have to let go of your hatred. You have to let go of your anger. You have to let go of your lusts. You have to let go of your lying because those things are killing you. And in my kingdom, I cannot tolerate the things that kill you. So repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. times now where Jesus seems like he's tolerant. He is tolerant. He won't always be, though. There will come a day when we'll have to choose. Am I going to hold on to my hatred and my anger, my sin? Am I going to enter your kingdom? Which one do I love more? Which one do I love more? I don't know about you, but I love that we are a church that's pro-healing, I love that we had a group that met during the nine o'clock hour called Overcome that deals with mental health issues. I love that. I love that we have Celebrate Recovery that meets every single Tuesday night at 6.30 right here. I love that. I love that we offer things like divorce care and grief share. I love that we had a pornography addiction recovery group. Man, I, I love that that's the kind of church that we are where we've said we want to put our money where our mouth is. We're not about punishing people. We're about helping people find life and find healing and find joy again. And I also know, I also know that there are many of you where you walk in these doors, you may walk in them every single week or this may be your first time here, where this has not been your experience of the church. And I want to publicly say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the church judged you without hearing your story. I'm sorry that you felt like in faith communities that you weren't welcome because of some things in your past or maybe some things in your present. I'm sorry that we've elevated some sins above others and called them really, really wrong and overlooked some of the things that Jesus was strongest about. I'm sorry for the way that you've been condemned. I'm sorry for the way that you've been cast out. I'm sorry for the way that so often the church has failed to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. So if we're on the other end of that pain for you in any way, I wanna beg for your forgiveness and point you to a God who says, I love you, and I'm for you. And you owe it to yourself to give Jesus another chance. As people of faith, my prayer for us is that in this culture of contempt and judgment, let's choose, let's choose to be people of love. I am convinced, I am convinced that that is what the world needs most from the church right now is for people to come up alongside, to stand at the defense, to see people, to see ourselves, to say there's a better way without heaping condemnation and to say, I wanna help you heal. I long for the day where people say, I'm broken, I'm in a dark spot, I've made some of the worst decisions of my life and I need to find a church.
because I know those people will help me heal. Let's be that kind of place. We're going to close our time with an imaginative exercise, and so I'm going to invite you to just put your stuff away and to take a few moments and let's try to put ourselves in place of the people in this story. Let's try to hear what they might have heard and let's try to feel what they might have felt. And as you do this, as we go through this together, would you just be praying, Jesus, is, what do you want me to hear in this? What's a word from your spirit that you just want to ignite in my soul? Who do I associate with most and, and why? Let's just ask the spirit to work. This Jesus is extremely popular, but his teachings are so dangerous. Over and over again, he says and does things that contradict with the scriptures. What do we do if the crowds begin to doubt the scriptures? That's why we came up with this idea. We just need everyone to hear Jesus commit heresy by contradicting the scriptures. It's our duty to uphold sound teaching. Well, we found a woman who had been caught in adultery. The scriptures clearly teach that she should be stoned. Sin cannot be tolerated or watered down. Sin is dangerous to the community, and that is why God set up such laws. It's about protecting the community from godlessness. Honestly, I hope that Jesus does the right thing. I hope he sides with the scriptures on this issue. His popularity could strengthen people's faith in the text. Jesus, the scriptures say that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? That's when he said, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. How does he keep doing this? He is rather brilliant. Every try, time we try to, to catch him in his false teaching, he says something to win over the crowds and gets out of it. That's when he started writing in the sand. I couldn't see what he was writing from where I was, but in the awkward silence, I couldn't stop thinking that he had us cornered. Again, I couldn't see what he was writing, but some of my older colleagues started to just walk away. We had lost the battle. I decided to leave with them. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. That was the last thing I expected to hear in that moment. I was guilty. I knew it. They certainly knew it. I could feel their anger in the deafening silence. Then one by one, they left in their shame. But I stood there in my shame and looked up into his eyes. I had nowhere else to go. Some of us know without a doubt, we have no hope without mercy, without grace. 
It's hard to explain what happened when my eyes met his. I was exposed even more than before. And he didn't just know my sin, he knew my fears, my hurt, my longings. He knew my soul. It should have been terrifying, but it was somehow utter freedom. Like I was home for the first time in my life. I was loved, even longed for. He saw something in me I had never dared see in myself. Just a moment before I had stood face to face with condemnation and death. Now I stood face to face with love and light. He could heal me and he had a place for me. My heart is so grieved. They don't even see her. Yes, she's broken and yes, she was sinning, but, but they can't even see her as a fellow human being. They can't see that even in her brokenness, she carries my image. Well, I see her. She is mine. I made her. I, I made her for so much more than this moment. I love her because she's mine. How can I help them to see her? They only see their interpretation of the law. These religious leaders are trying so hard to preserve the law, but for all the wrong reasons. They don't know, but the law demands compassion in this situation. Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. I'll give them time to think about that. Hmm. After they all left, I... I could finally get to the most important task of inviting her to life. I looked at her deeply. The fear in her eyes melted away as she noticed the love in my eyes. I imagine she didn't know why she felt okay all of a sudden, but she did soften. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She was shocked. She knew her own sin, and she couldn't imagine why she could ever receive grace beyond deserving. She told me, no, no one has condemned me. Now it's time. She needs to know that sin is killing her. My love for her is too strong to simply save her physical life. I want to save her soul life. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Again, I could see it in her eyes. She didn't need to say anything more. That moment was the first time she had understood why she shouldn't sin. She shouldn't sin because she's loved and sin is killing her. pray over the people in this room who carry in pain, burden, and that the message that they've heard too often is that their sin is the end of their story. Jesus, I pray that today you might reframe that. May, may it be the beginning of a story of healing, of hope, and of redemption. And Jesus, for all of us, 
as you invite us into your kingdom today, not forcing it on us, but calling us into it, would we let go of the things that prevent us from living under your good rule and your good reign. And Jesus, most of all, I pray that we, as your church, would be people who carry the banner of love in a culture of contempt. Please, please. It's in your powerful name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.